our last lesson as we look at Gideon. And unfortunately, as we look at Gideon tonight, rather than talking about this continued wonderful transformation that God is working in this man, we are going to see his unraveling, unfortunately. And it is interesting and it is sometimes hard to believe how far people can fall. Uh, people that we would uh, see in life and go, wow, they seem to have everything all set to go and things seem to be going so well. And yet from that lofty perch, they ultimately fall. And that, that's not only true in the world around us, but there are many people in the scriptures that are recorded as uh, having these amazing spiritual blessings and yet losing them, throwing them away and ultimately unwinding those things. Perhaps Judas being the one of the most notable of, of, of people, someone who was with Jesus as one of his chosen 12 and spent countless days and hours with him. And yet at the very end of his life, then falling far from God and the decisions that he made. And unfortunately, we're going to see that in Gideon, that his life is going to take a, a, a tragic turn. And we're going to look at what happened in his life and then talk about ultimately how we can prevent that kind of failure uh, from happening in our lives after experiencing such a great transformation. Now, I remind you from the past couple of lessons that we, as we've looked at this man, Gideon, that we have been introduced to him as a man hiding in a wine press, threshing wheat, trying to hide it from the Midianites because the outside invaders keep coming in and taking all of their foods and taking their livestock and ultimately causing a disaster for the people. But God has raised up Gideon to be the deliverer. He has taken only 300 men and has been able to be victorious over 135,000 Midianites with torches and empty pitchers. And that shows the power of God and what God was going to do to take glory to himself and give this great victory. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Judges chapter 8. But the, the majority of that chapter begins to talk about the victory that Gideon is achieving. And it's outside of what I want to talk about tonight. But I do want to summarize a little bit of what is going on in those first uh, 21 verses of uh, of chapter 8. Uh, chapter 7 has them winning a, in, in against the Midianites and putting them to flight. And you have uh, the leaders and the captains and the various soldiers that are all on the run. And you have in chapter 8 that Gideon and his men are chasing after them. And, and this is a, a long, tiring process. And Gideon and his men come to a couple of cities in Israelite territory and say, listen, we're chasing down these guys and we're going to get the victory. But we could use some provisions. We could use some water. We could use some food. Could you help us out? And in both cases... They basically mock Gideon and the men and say, yeah, good luck with that. We don't think you're going to win and we're not going to help you. And Gideon will make a proclamation, to something to the effect of, well, when we get the victory, we're going to come back and tear down your tower and, and do something like that. And it's really funny because everybody reads and they get really bent out of shape with Gideon about, you know, how dare you say something like that? Doesn't seem very godly to go, you know, tell them, okay, well, I'm going to go without you and then come back and tear down your tower. Jay Gideon, what's the matter with you? But I want you to think about, a little bit of foreshadowing that is happening here because the picture is this is God's deliverer and his men have come to deliver Israel from their oppression. But rather than supporting God's deliverer and his men, 
They mock him. They refuse to help. And the deliverer proclaims, well, I'm going to achieve the victory anyway. And when I come back, there's going to be judgment because you didn't support me. Now, does that sound a little familiar? You have a foreshadowing of ultimately what Christ is going to do. You're getting a picture of when God's ultimate deliverer comes with his selected men. He's going to be rejected and mocked by the people. And he's going to achieve the victory for them anyway, but then come back in judgment. And so you have to have a right lens on what's playing out here as Gideon is going about doing this work and rescuing Israel and delivering the people from this great oppression. Stunningly, they will not support him in that effort. But Gideon and his men, by the hand of God, are able to bring about a victory. And it is such a decisive victory that I want you to notice what happens when Gideon comes back from the battle. Notice in Judges chapter 8 and verse 22. Verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings of his spoil." For they had the gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak. And every man threw in the earrings of the spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings, as was requested, was about 43 pounds of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian. And besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels. And Gideon made an ephod out of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to all his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abizarites. And as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and and made Baal Bereth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all of their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. It's a, it's a stunning ending to this scene, and it seems like the ending is going to start out so well. In verse 22, shockingly, all the people of Israel, after Gideon has obtained the victory, they all go to Gideon and say, we want you to be king. But not only do they want him to be king, but we're ready to start a dynasty out of you. It's going to be you and your son, and we're just going to make you king. And forever, Gideon, you're going to have this dynasty, and you're going to rule over us as well as all of your offspring. I find it interesting that this is quite a turn of events in Gideon's life. Please remember how Gideon started. Gideon starts as a nobody hiding in a wine press, trying to keep the wheat from the Midianites. 
And when the angel of the Lord says, hey, you mighty man of valor, he's like, you are not talking to me. You, you have to be kidding me. I, I am the least. I can't do this. And I just want you to observe the trajectory of what God has done. He has taken somebody who is a, a, a seeming nobody and has now made him so victorious and, and has given such a great victory through his hand that the whole nation now says, we want to make you king. And not only do we want to make you king. But we want to make your son king and you die and then his son and his son. You, your name is just going to be infamous in the land of Israel going forward. And one of the things that I always want to, to keep in mind uh, that we would always note how God is always working with the insignificant, quote unquote, to accomplish his glory and purposes. You know, so often we think we look at ourselves and we go, well, who am I? I can't do anything. I don't have any abilities. I don't have any talents. I, I, I'm a nobody, so I can't contribute at all to the work of God. I have no, no place here. And I want you to see that God never, ever, ever uses the accomplished and the successful. He always uses the seemingly insignificant, the outcast, the downtrodden, and says, perfect, I'm going to use you. And everyone always raises their hand and go, no, it can't be me. You know, we, I, Moses is one of my favorites, right? Moses says, I can't talk. I, I, I can't do anything. I'm going to just totally bungle this whole thing up. And you read the life of Moses and you go, wow. But he thought, no. Gideon thought, no. God uses people who think they can't do anything to do great things. I said this in the class this morning. I said, uh, think about the 12 men Jesus selected. How significant are they? How accomplished are they? How great are they? What kind of renown? Uh, they're from Galilee. <laughs> they're fishermen and tax collectors and zealots. And yet God uses those kinds of people. And the same thing is happening here that God will take the insignificant and he will use them for his own glory and for his own purposes and you feel like Gideon understands that in verse 22 when they come to him and say, hey, rule over us. Listen to what Gideon says in verse 23. He says, I'm not going to rule over you. My son's not going to rule over you. What a great answer. The Lord will rule over you. The, God is to be your king. That has always been the intent. That's always been the model. That's always been the goal. God will be your king. And seems like Gideon understands that. No, I'm not going to take the, this, this position. I'm not going to be king, even though you're trying to throw it at me. I'm not going to do that. He seems to understand that he was simply an instrument in God's hand. And, and he should have known that. He didn't want to do any of this. He was extremely fearful. And yet God used him anyway with only 300 men to accomplish God's victory. And one of the things that I think is particularly striking about what is happening here in verses 22 and 23 is, do you remember why God wanted Gideon to only use 300 people and not the 32,000 that he started with? We looked at that last week. God's big concern in chapter 7 was that what's going to happen is the people are going to give glory the wrong direction. Rather than seeking God and giving glory to God, God is saying, what you're going to do is you're going to say it was you. You're going to say it was your power, your might, your strength, your abilities. And I don't want that to happen. 
And ironically enough, even though Gideon has only used 300 men, just like God had said to do, what do the people do? Hey, Gideon, you're so wonderful. You're amazing. You're going to be our king. You be the guy. And it's like, no, that's not the, the whole point was not to do that. The whole point was to see that it wasn't Gideon. It couldn't have been Gideon. It was only him and 300 guys. It had to be God who did that. And Gideon's trying to point him them that way to remind them this is the hand of God, that God will rule over you, that this is ultimately what God's purpose was, is so that people would seek after God. And so he says all the right things. And oh, how I wish this chapter ended at verse 23. But then verse 24, Gideon said, but let me make a request of you. And you're reading the pages and you're going, no, (laughs) no, you leave it on. Let the Lord rule over you. Don't step any further. Say no more. Lord rule over you. Great answer. God is your king. Don't look any further. But verse 24. Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings of the spoil. And then you have this parenthetical statement that. The Midianites ultimately came from the Ishmaelites and they had all kinds of gold and gold earrings. And so you read about them willingly giving all of this gold, not only the earrings, but the gold from the camels that were around their necks and crescent ornaments and pendants and all of this that was given. And what is particularly fascinating about this is, you know, for us, I I read a modern version because ESV reads 1,700 shekels of gold. And you go, okay, is that a lot or a little? That's 43 pounds, approximately 42.7 pounds of gold. Well, that's a lot. This is not like, oh, hey, great, five, five earrings to put on top of my fireplace as a trophy for the victory that God gave to us. This is not that. We wish it was that, but it's not that. It is 43 pounds of gold are ultimately thrown at him. And what is particularly interesting is it looks a little bit like a tribute that a king would receive. Here you say, all right, I gave you the victory. Now, I'm not asking for anything, but, you know, would you mind just giving me a little bit of the spoils of of the battle, a little bit of a tribute here? He kind of starts looking like a king in that request. And then, interestingly enough, as we read a little bit later, when you get out to verse 30, you read that Gideon had 70 sons. Because he had many wives. You remember one of the things that God was very concerned about when Israel did have kings was that they would accumulate wives unto themselves. And he directly told in Deuteronomy 17, don't do that. So I want you to notice, though he says, I will not be your king. He receives gold kind of like he's a king. He's accumulating wives kind of like he's a king. And then notice in verse 31, it says that one of the sons of his concubine, he names Abimelech. Now, you might read that and go, that's not a really big big deal, you know, Abimelech. You might have a little footnote in your Bible, though, that tells you what the name of that son means. My father is king. Hmm. (laughs) Oh, no, I'm not king. God's the king. But, boy, we're sure looking like a king. And then finally, 
one of the worst things you see Gideon do is in receiving all of the gold, it says in verse 27, that Gideon made an ephod and put it in the, his home city of Ophrah. Now, an ephod was typically what the priests would kind of think of like a vest of sorts. So with the 43 pounds of gold, you can imagine he melts it and fashions it into this 43-pound gold vest and puts it back in the city. And verse 27 says in his home city that Israel then whored after it there and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. This is not just simply, oh, let's put a statue up and hey, let's remember the great victory that God has done. There is a shocking reversal that has happened. Do you remember what God had asked Gideon to do before we got all of this thing started? You have the angel of the Lord come to Gideon and say, all right, mighty man of valor, you're going to be the one to be the deliverer. And after the whole back and forth and the dew on the fleece and all of that, God says, now, before we get going, here's what I need you to do. I need you to tear down the Baal idols that are in Ophrah that the city is whoring after. Go get two bulls, tear it down, tear down the Asherah pole, and then we can get started. Now, that was in chapter six. And now Gideon has undone all of the transformation that has been accomplished by his hand up to that point. After tearing down the idols and trying to get Israel on the right track, he now puts an idol in there that verse 27 says, they all start worshiping it. They're bowing down to it. They are whoring after it. And not only is it the city, but even Gideon and his whole family, we're told in verse 27, are also participating in that as well. In fact, the ending that is given to us is just so stunning that as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals, and they made Baal bereth their God. Now please underscore this next sentence. The people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. I couldn't help but come to the end of chapter 8 and I just wrote these words. It all seems like a waste, doesn't it? This whole three chapter story about all of this seems like we ended up nowhere. We started off with, oh, they're worshiping the bells. Well, we're going to tear the bells down and God's going to show how glorious he is and everyone's going to be changed. and We're going to follow God. and Yay, God, he's going to give us the victory and God gives them the victory. And they go, all right, we have the victory. Now let's go back to our idolatry and forget everything that God had ever done. That's what the passage says. They didn't remember the Lord, their God, who had delivered them from the hands of their enemies on every side. It did not make a return on the good that had been accomplished by God through Gideon to the people of Israel. So here's what I want to spend the few minutes that we have tonight talking about. Here, what is God trying to teach us? 
in regards to recording this catastrophic failure by Gideon and his family. And I think our primary point has to be this. To note how easy it is and how quickly we can undo our spiritual progress. How easy it is to be on a spiritual trajectory upward toward God and quickly unravel, undo all of that upward gain and lose all of that spiritual growth, spiritual blessings and spiritual transformation. I think it is such an important reminder to the people of God, to us, that we have to constantly be vigilant and careful about our souls, about our spiritual place before God, because there is such a temptation to spiritually coast. I I don't know another phrase for it, except you, you pedal for a while really hard with God, and then you go, man, I've been pedaling really hard with God for a while. It looks like it's going to be downhill for a bit, so feed off the pedals, and let's just coast for a while, and it's going to be great, and we can just kind of cruise with God without much effort. And I think you're seeing that with, with Gideon here, as we have attained this a massive victory, and he goes back home, and he's just going to live at home and, and relax the rest of his days and not worry about it all, and okay, yeah, just give me some earrings, we'll make an ephod, we'll put it back out there, which by the way, did you know, does that sound familiar, that whole scene like Sinai when Moses was on the mountain and Aaron's like, hey, give me the gold, and oh, hey, here's a golden calf, and then they all worship the golden calf, well, here's all the gold, and oh, hey, here's a linen ephod, I mean, not a linen ephod, but a golden ephod, and we'll put it in the city, it's like the same thing all over again, it's like where the leader walks away and everybody just simply coasts. There's a reason why there are passages like this in the scriptures. Therefore, We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away. And the reason why I think that's striking is the writer of Hebrews did not like send that to lost unbelieving souls and say, hey, guys, you know, you need to pay more careful attention to God. He writes to Christians and says, you better be really careful and pay even much closer attention to what we've heard. Because if we don't, we'll drift away from it. In fact, Dennis's reading for during the Lord's Supper and reminding us of Peter, someone who's walked with Jesus all this time and yet in one quick step is almost undoing everything and Jesus is saying, hey, look out, look out. Uh, You're being a temptation now at this point. You're not even recognizing what you're saying, what you're doing right here. We must pay more careful attention to what we've heard because the threat to fall back is so real and it's always there. I'm going to ask you to kind of go to your personal memories of people for a minute. But I would imagine if you've been in church long enough, you have seen people or know people personally who appeared to have great spiritual strength 
And then suddenly one day it seems that they fall away and drift off and you're really thrown by that. You're like, this person seems so strong. They seem like they were walking with God. They seem like they had this close relationship. I was modeling my life after them because they seemed so strong in how they were serving God and what happened. I, I can't tell you how many personal people that I know who were like preachers of the gospel for decades. And then they just fall into deep sin and walk off. And you're like, what happened? How does something like that happen? And you read the story of Gideon. How does something like this happen? What is going on? God just gave you great victory. You know that wasn't you. You won with torches and empty jars with 300 guys. What happened? We're so shocked when we see elders and preachers and teachers who know the word of God and seem to be doing God's work and seem to be spiritually strong, suddenly fall victim. And I think one of our key answers is this. You'll drift away if you ever let up. If you ever let up, you're going to drift. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is describing. Pay even closer attention. The whole idea is now that you're in Christ, now that you're doing well, now that you have growth, now that you have strength, you need to press more, not less. We need to be even more diligent and not coast. Because the huge temptation is to coast. Listen to how the Apostle Paul said this as he came toward the conclusion of his second letter to the Corinthians. He said, examine yourselves. Now listen to why. To see whether you are in the faith. But Paul, who are you writing to? Who are you talking to here? You're talking to a a, a church, a people that you know. These are Christians who've been there a very long time. We're on the second letter, which might be the third or the fourth letter. I mean, you've been with them a very long time. They know you very well. If you end the letter by saying, now you better examine yourselves just to see if you're in the faith. Test yourselves, he says. And then watch what he says. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. You know, I suppose if we were to receive that letter and we heard the words, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. I think we would all raise our hands and go, of course I'm in the faith, Paul. What are you talking about? I'm sitting here listening to your letter right now. (laughs) What do you mean? Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Of course I'm in the faith. And I want you to see because the answer is not that simple. It's not just as simple as, oh, yeah, I'm with God, so we're all good, so we're all coasted together right to our very destruction. He's saying you need to be careful. Examine yourself, watch yourself, test yourself, and notice what the test is. Here's the test. Jesus Christ in you. Unless you failed to meet the test. Well, now I start reading the test a little differently, don't I? I want to read the test of, well, I went to church, so of course I'm in the faith, right? No, he goes, here's the test. Is Christ in you? Is that what people see? 
Because if they don't, you fail the test. So examine yourself, he says. You need to watch out. Be careful. Realize how easy it is to undo the progress that has been accomplished. Listen to how Paul said it to the Ephesians. Be careful. Pay careful attention then to how you walk. Here's this. You're living your life. You're a Christian. You're a believer. You're a follower. You're with him. And now he says, now you need to be really careful how you live your life. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise. Well, what do we need to do? Making the most of your time. You know how easy it is to coast with God when it comes to your time. Well, I'm with God. I'll read tomorrow. I got, you know, busy. I could pray later. Stuff, things. And here's Paul saying, oh, the days are evil. You're going to be tempted to coast with God. And one of the areas you're going to be tempted with is your time. You know what our culture has done so well right now? Is try to make us waste time mentally numbing ourselves. It's funny the ads that I get are, I really love this game because I don't have to think. Hmm. Hmm. Well, what are we saying? Well, I just don't want to have to engage in anything. I just want to coast. I just want to gel. I just want to not have to think. And that's dangerous when it comes to the things of God. That here is this time that is given to us and we see it as an opportunity to waste it. And Paul said, don't waste time. Be careful with your time because those are opportunities where Satan's going to come after you. The days are evil. And so he says, be careful how you're walking. Pay attention to what's around you. If you don't think Satan's right behind your shoulder trying to get you, you're fooling yourself. Because coasting leads to disaster and God says you better pay more careful attention. And we have such an opposite response of I'm good with God. I'm faithful. I love him. And so I can coast. I'm good. I can kill time rather than saying I need more time for the things of God. If you've grown up in the pews, you you know this one. But let's let's remind ourselves of how the Apostle Paul thought about his walk with God. First Corinthians nine. Now, everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I have always read that and thought, Paul, if there's anybody who's not going to get disqualified around here, it's you. (laughs) I mean, Paul, you're good. I mean, your resume blows mine out of the water. You're good. And Paul says, you know what I'm really scared about? I'm going to go around teaching people the gospel and I'm going to get disqualified in the process. Well, Paul, how could that possibly happen? Because it's easy to coast. It's easy to let up. It's easy to just go status quo. And friends, I hope we would think about how sad it would be 
to experience the grace of God and the transformation of his love only to drift away because we did not continue to press forward. This account of Gideon is not only shocking, it should be heartbreaking to think that it is possible to experience the power of God and visually see all that God had accomplished and still walk away and still fall into temptation and sin. Friends, the the concern that we must have is that our temptation is to not pay close attention to ourselves or close attention to the word of God. And I encourage you with the life of Gideon to not lose focus. Don't lose sight of why you're here. Do not lose sight of where you are going. And I think Satan's great temptation for us, besides just outright sin, is to deceive us with spiritual laziness. Just coast. You're fine. You don't have to do anything more. Just relax. And we must run this race with intensity so that we do not come up short. Friends, don't compromise your faith. And realize that your faith is constantly under attack. And I'll end with, with, with this thought. Because I think this is always to me a challenging thought. And I think it's useful for us to always keep in mind. <clears throat> when you gave your life to God. And you came up out of the waters of baptism. I would suspect that I could probably get a hundred percent agreement that everybody was on fire for God. I am going to change the world. People are going to know I'm going to be different. It's not going to be like that. I've got all of these things that I'm going to do. And so I'll ask them, is the fire still there? Or did we move into coasting? Gideon coasted. And he lost it all. May we press forward and not give up and not coast all the way till we get to eternity. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would just show us in our lives and expose to us the areas where we are just become spiritually lazy and coasting when it comes to you. Help us to see where we can be more intense in our love for you and in our devotion to you and our service to you. Help us to see the areas that we can change. Help us to observe if we are making the most of our time. Help us to look at where there are areas that we can devote even more to you rather than simply spiritually becoming a coaster. And so, Lord, help us to see that. And, Lord, forgive us for all of the spiritual goals and desires and zeal that we had at the start that we wanted to give to you. And over time, we have grown cold. And help us to pay far closer attention to ourselves and far closer attention to your word so that we do not drift away. Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts when we start drifting and help us to see when we are moving away from you. 
And help us to be aware of the temptation that is before us. To simply coast our way in. And Lord, we don't want to be disqualified. We do not want to be disqualified. Help us to run this race. And may it not be in vain. And may you forgive us and give us a greater intensity in the days ahead. We pray this through your Son and our Savior, Jesus. And amen. We help you tonight to come back to God if you have been moving away from him, if the intensity has been waning. We would love to help you to, to do that. We would love you love to help you get closer to God, to draw near to him with all of your hearts. Well, the purposes of worship and the purposes of our gathering is to be able to draw closer to him, to connect with him even more so. And we want to help you in that process. You can talk to us afterward. You can talk to me afterward if you'd like. Any way that we can help you, come to him with all of your heart. Let us know. Won't you come forward now while we stand and while we sing?